I hope everybody is still enjoying um, his and her lunch. Um, I would also like to take this opportunity to thank the Great Blade Catering for this really wonderful uh, meal. Thank you very much. And also special thanks to the... Yes, that's worth some applause. Thank you. And also thanks to the University of Lethbridge for their support. I also would like to mention if you have no uh, membership yet, you can purchase this for $25 and $5 for students. Um, so now we have uh, Chris and Laura here on stage again. And I would therefore like to start the question session. Who would like to start with the first question? Can I go? Oh, I guess so. Uh, Leona Jacobs, um, Chris. <laughs> and nice to meet you, Laura. Um, so my question isn't totally fully formed, so it, hopefully you can get something out of this. But when you were talking about drought being the overriding concern here, um, you're not wrong, but we've also had our, our bouts of floods here, and 95 being a really good example, where we had high snow and then we had melt and then we had rain like lots of rain and that just washed everything down and and so I guess I'm wondering to what extent does this technology help kind of anticipate the possibility of those kinds of events <coughs> happening I guess I'm thinking about this year because we've had in current history or recent history a higher snowfall than we have in previous years and if we get a a rain, a fast rain, uh, whether we're going to have another repeat of 95. So I don't know, does that, does that actually, does your technology actually kind of give us a heads up on this sort of thing? Well, <clears throat> I should probably be clear that this is not a real-time technology. It, it's something that we would implement and uh, collect data on an as-needed or as-it's-possible um, basis. So, uh, for example, we've collected up to three data sets in any one winter. If, if this were to be rolled out as a, as a kind of an operational uh, procedure, we might imagine that it could be done monthly throughout the winter, and it might uh, not be kind of wall-to-wall -wall covering an entire watershed. We might uh, map the snowpack resource in a sampling uh, strategy over a much larger area, and then use some kind of modeling uh, routine to give us an estimate of the snowpack uh, volumetric content in the in the headwaters, so I, I think uh, you know there's, there's a methodological strategy that needs to be developed, and we're working on that right now. But it will not give us real-time data. It just gives us some kind of baseline information um, that what we're suggesting is a supplement to what we already have. Now. This isn't going to replace uh, weather stations, of course. That's a completely different type of data. You know, weather stations will give us real-time precipitation, historical precipitation, temperature, uh, radiation uh, information, you know, whatever it is that we're interested in. And we can use those kind of var variables to make predictions of, of weather uh, forecasts or quantify how much precipitation is falling or to quantify how much snow melt might occur at any given time. Mm -hmm. 
But the problem is if we don't know how much snowpack is in the mountains at any given time, then you know, what are our uh, meteorological data going to tell us? You know, Because we need to have both sets of information. We need the real-time uh, hydrometeorological information, but we also need this kind of baseline information on how much snow is there because that gives us the potential um, either for floods over a short period of melt or for drought over the, the coming months. So this is what we see is that it's part of a framework of, of environmental monitoring. It's not one technology answers everything for us, it's just part of an overall suite. And so that's actually what we're working with the, some members of the provincial government right now is to, is to kind of develop an optimal strategy for what that framework might look like. Thank you. I'm Larry Alford. I just wondered if the LIDAR technology would be applicable to the forests and measurement of things like pine beetle infestations, and if you could elaborate a little bit on that. And, and I've, I've noticed it being used, um, helicopter surveys of certain land formations, and I don't remember what the purpose was at the time, but if, you, if, uh, if I missed it in your presentation while I was at the back, if you could outline some of the key areas where LIDAR is particularly useful and could be implemented a little more. I'll, I'll take a stab at that, but maybe Laura can uh, add a little bit if I don't cover everything. Um, okay, now in terms of light on forest resources, this is a very, very active area of research and has been um, for almost as long as LIDAR and water resources. So for the last uh, 10 to 15 years, there's been a lot of activity in this area, and uh, especially in Alberta. So when it comes to issues like pine beetle, this is one area where the utilization of, of LIDAR for kind of salvage logging, for example, has been explored. Um, what are the challenges with pine beetle? And you know, full disclosure here, I'm not an expert on um, insect pests. Um, <clears throat> but one of the challenges, of course, is that uh, it's difficult to identify uh, when the infestation starts. But once it's started, and once the trees are dead, I mean, heck, you can take a photograph and you'll see dead trees because they'll, they'll be red and the needles will be falling off. Um, so yes, you can use LIDAR to detect these types of phenomena, um, but some people might argue that that's a little bit like a sledgehammer to crack a nut. It's, it's, it can be done, but it's maybe not the most cost-effective way because aerial photography would also uh, do that for you and that might not be quite as costly, or even satellite imagery which would be uh, cheaper. Now, but if you want to specifically quantify biomass volumes um, associated with that, that loss for, let's say, salvage logging, then LIDAR is probably a, a cost-effective way to do that. And when it comes to standard forest inventory, uh, there I'm using that term standard again, um, up until recently, LIDAR was not a standard technique in forest inventory, but it has become a standard technique or the go-to technology for estimating timber volumes and counting uh, tree stems on the landscape. So a lot of standard forest inventory variables can be extracted utilizing airborne LIDAR. And actually, the government, government of Alberta, again, has been quite proactive in that area. Uh, Ken Sears, and likely you and I'm, I'm sort of formulating this as I go along. But, and, and I realize you've got a, in overall terms, a very short da uh, temporal data set. I mean, it doesn't go back that far. <coughs> Excuse me. But would it be possible using LIDAR to identify um, wet, wet weather springs, wet weather watercourses, 
Uh, I'll use a por the Porcupine Hills as an example where you'll have these ephemeral springs that will come out either after very wet weather or after snow melt that then run for three, four, six weeks and then vanish. Is it possible using LiDAR A to identify those springs and those water courses from the water or B from uh, the differences in vegetation on those water, along those water courses? Can you foresee that being useful? Yeah, that's an interesting question and not one that I had really thought too much about. But one of the strengths of LiDAR is it gives you a very high resolution um, surface model of the terrain. And so if you know where your springs are likely to occur, let's say, for example, uh, you've got an interface of two geological strata, and at that interface is where springs occur, then you might not be able to observe those so easily in, uh, in traditional photogrammetric or satellite-based techniques because maybe you've got vegetation over that boundary. Uh, the value with LIDAR is you can strip away that vegetation because it's what's known as an active technology. It kind of sees through the trees or through the vegetation down to the, the bedrock or the, the, uh, the, the surface um, morphology. And so if you have these kind of geological um, exposures that, that lead to springs occurring, then yeah, that, this technology would help you identify those potential sources. The other uh, beneficial element of, of this technology is that because it's high resolution relief or high re resolution topographic information, you can map watercourses with, with fairly high accuracy even when you've got vegetation cover. So I'd say it could be a tool to help with that, but I admit it's not something I've explored uh, myself. Thanks very much. Chris, for coming uh, to speak today about this important tool that we no doubt will see much more of in the future. Um, my question relates to avalanche control, and uh, I know that you have part partaken in a, in a film about avalanches, uh, but more specifically, uh, can you measure the density of the snow, which is a very important factor in, in avalanche control? and uh, a little bit about avalanches and maybe your experience uh, filming uh, an avalanche would be interesting to hear. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, that sets off so many different thoughts and trajectories in my head. I'm not really sure where to start. But the first point, uh, actually the first caveat is I'm not an avalanche researcher. But I do study snow in the mountains, so I guess that means sooner or later I'm going to encounter avalanches. Um, you mentioned density. Uh, LiDAR does not give us density directly because it measures just the surface expression of whatever, whatever we're looking at, whether that's a tree, whether it's some geological outcrop, or whether it's a snowpack. We're just measuring the surface. Uh, now, we can infer density using other data sources, or we could model it, estimate it, um, but I just want to get that clear. We don't measure density directly with LiDAR. It's just the surface. So we can get volumes and depths, for example. Um, now, as to this, this experience with, uh, with avalanche mapping, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I got a, a phone call from a, a colleague that, um, to let me know that apparently a number of uh, scientists had been pulled together to do some studies in the, in the fortress, uh, fortress ski hill area in Kananaskis. And they were going to set off an avalanche, and they, they basically wanted to instrument the hell out of this thing. They just wanted to put all kinds of technologies 
um, out in the landscape and monitor everything they could uh, with, with regards to uh, avalanches. And they were going to set the avalanches off and we were going to record them. So we had strange technologies, radar technologies, infrasound technologies, which is kind of like ultrasound except it's out there, um, video cameras, thermal cameras, and uh, crash test dummies with all kinds of sensors on them that were buried in the avalanche and helicopters flying around everywhere. It was a very interesting uh, experience to get involved with that. Uh, and we were the LIDAR team. So I, I went along with uh, three uh, grad students from the university, and uh, we were there to monitor the, the three-dimensional expression of the avalanche slope before and after the actual avalanche. Now, there was a slight problem. Uh, the, the, the technology can do this, of course. That's no problem. Um, but where they, uh, there were two options for the avalanche, one that we could see and one that we couldn't see. Now, of course, this is a problem with LiDAR technology. You kind of have to be able to see the thing you're mapping in order to be able to collect data off of it. And as it happened, they chose the one that we couldn't see. So uh, that, that instantly created some challenges for us. Um, but we were able to capture some data, and uh, we were able to, over the, the three days that we were there, make some initial uh, calculations. So uh, overall, it was, was successful in that we we demonstrated the viability of the technology for uh, mapping avalanche volumes, i.e. map the surface before it happens, set off some explosions, avalanche falls, map the surface again, and then difference them. So we demonstrated you could do that. It's just that there were a few areas we couldn't see, so we couldn't actually get an accurate volume of the, uh, of the avalanche. Um, but, uh, but if I may digress, I'm not sure if there's a time limit on this, the, the thing that uh, struck me as being the most interesting was that this is the first time... Sorry, I see, I can hear myself fine. <laughs> uh, the, for me, I, I'd never gotten involved with this kind of a documentary before. It's a very different experience. I mean, we've got three days, we've got this shoot, we've got a bunch of scientists from around the world, all converge, no one knows one another, everyone's getting to know one another, no one knew what the plan was, we just get there and we do it, and, and then we've got this production crew of I guess 30 or so, you know, camera people, and yeah, anyway, you can imagine, it was pretty hectic and a strange environment for an academic like myself to suddenly be immersed in. And of course, I knew how I wanted to do my job. I was there to map this avalanche slope. And so the, uh, uh, you know, I get there with the students, we set up, we start doing our thing, and then as soon as the production crew show up, they, they ask us what we're doing, they say, oh no, we don't want you to do that. We want you to do it this way. And so we jumped in snowmobiles and we go blasting around and, and they created this whole narrative over how we were going to collect this, this data. And it was really quite romantic. <coughs> I mean, when I look back, I thought, oh, it's kind of cool, it's a nice story. But it wasn't actually the way we would do it. And so uh, it, it, a few minutes ago, uh, I just this, this thought entered into my head that really what I got from this whole experience was never let facts get in the way of the truth. You know, because they had a story to tell, they had a message to make, and there's nothing bogus about the story they wanted to tell, but they just didn't want to tell it truthfully. I, so that, that was actually, so as an academic, I learned something there, because I thought, well, you know what, if you want to get your message across, maybe, you know, don't worry about the facts. <laughs> just get straight to the truth. So, yeah, maybe that wasn't your question, Knut, but that was kind of what came to me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Is anybody else having a question? Yes. Thank you, Chris. My name is Tad Mitsui. 
What do you do with the person you just mentioned? They deny facts. They're climate change deniers. And uh, when they see facts, it's hawks or fake news. What do you do with them? <laughs> uh, aside from get frustrated, um, it, it's, it, it happens, of course. I mean, in, in the classroom, it happens. We, we encounter students frequently that don't buy the truth that we're trying to sell. And sometimes this is where, for me, the facts are important. And, and so you try to present the facts, but it, sometimes it doesn't matter, right? Because whatever facts you present, uh, some people just will never listen. And um, I, I must admit, I, I think over the years, I've developed a fairly fatalistic uh, impression. I probably shouldn't admit that. But if some people don't want to be educated, then I'm probably going to divert my attentions to people that do want to be educated. And maybe that's not what you wanted to hear, and maybe that's not the best answer, but that's my own personal approach. I don't want to waste my time arguing with people that, that can't be convinced. But those that will listen, I'll be happy to have that conversation. I can't, my name is Knut Peterson, by the way. Uh, I can't believe anybody isn't asking questions about forest fires here. We, we've had some uh, extremely devastating forest fires last year around Alberta. Uh, I'd like to ask Laura if, if that came as a surprise to her. Well, wildfires are pretty interesting because every year it depends, you know, you, you get periods or years where you have a lot of wildfire, a lot of burn area. And you get years where, you know, relatively small burn area and a lot of the, the wildfires that we're seeing now are not just burning the forests, but they're burning those drying out peatlands. So, you know, it really depends on the, 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 the weather and what's going on that year and whether we have a, period, a dry period as to whether the fires are going to come and burn these areas. But the, the big concern really now is these um, areas that never burned in the past are now burning because we're seeing uh, more drying out as that uh, temperature is increasing slowly over time. We're not seeing the same amount of precipitation as we used to see or we'll get all the precipitation at kind of in a big dump and then it'll dry out later on in the year. So, you know, I, I think, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think anything really surprises me <laughs> that much anymore. But you know, and these things are a natural process. It's just very concerning when they start to happen around communities. Uh, Terry Shellington, <clears throat> thank you for your presentation, both of you, Laura and Chris. Um, I really can't resist offering a challenge back to you, uh, kind of uh, in the light of Tad Mitsui's question. Because I was thinking about phrasing the same question. And so here's a very detailed technological study of climate change and we have a generation of politicians, uh, some of whom um, um, deny climate change. And <clears throat> I think um, 
and, and the, two, the academic community and the political community sometimes carry on like railroad tracks down the same uh, uh, direction but not touching each other. I think there's no substitute for a little more activist academic community that engages and challenges uh, political views that uh, in your opinion are ill-informed or wrong. And um, I think one of the ways of change is whether it's letters to the editor or or letters to politicians, but I believe the academic community needs a little needs to be a good deal more activist about challenging untruth when you hear it. I, I certainly invite your response. I 100% agree with the, with what you've said. I would not disagree with it, but I would also counter that not all academics are necessarily solely focused on climate change research. Uh, in my case, some of my research delves into climate change. It, it's, it's definitely related. But a lot of my research is more dealing with uh, monitoring uh, and environmental resources and developing frameworks so that we can obtain better data, so that we can understand climate change more. It isn't necessarily to do climate change research. Now, I'm not a denier. I'm a 100%, you know, I, I understand climate change and, and I teach it and uh, I know that we're facing some real problems. But there's one other thing I want to add so that people understand. Uh, most of us academics have 100 hour plus work weeks as it is. You know, we teach, we do research, we have graduate supervision, we're writing proposals, we're in the field, we're very busy people. So while I agree with the sentiment of being an activist, it's, it's quite time consuming and sometimes if you don't need to make enemies, you know, it, it, why make your life any harder? And I'm not making excuses. I'm just stating a very real fact that you will find many academics that don't want to be activists, even though they might agree with the sentiment, they just don't want to be because they're already exhausted. They just don't have the time. And, and, and those colleagues of mine that do uh, take that activist approach, um, and I don't want to delve too deeply into this, but those acad academics that do, um, often other parts of their uh, job may suffer or the elements of their funding may not be quite so successful and then it becomes quite a controversial topic. So I, I would say those academics that want to be activists, absolutely they should be. Um, I'm not an activist, that is not my role in society, um, but I will uh, speak to the issues and provide evidence to the issues and try and help the problems. For example, I've got a hybrid, I've got solar panels on my roof and I'm happy to spread the gospel, if you want, uh, about living sustainably. I've got my own garden in the backyard. We try to live uh, those principles. I don't necessarily try to preach them because I just don't have time or energy. You know? So I, I, I'm sorry, maybe that's not the response you want, but I'm just trying to give you a heartfelt, legitimate response that sometimes you know, we can't all be activists. Thank you very much for all your questions. We have five more minutes, so maybe I allow myself to ask one question as I work together with those uh, great uh, scientists. Um, we heard a lot about the past and what you've been doing and the purpose you're doing this and how. So I was wondering if you could give the audience an idea about your future projects and what your plans for the next year are, especially this summer. What do you plan to do? Well, we've got a very exciting summer planned. We uh, have contracted another airplane, and we're going to be flying 
all over Alberta with a LiDAR system that's going to be provided by Optech. Uh, it's a multi-spectral LiDAR system, so it's, it's state-of-the-art. It's, it's almost, um, there's I think maybe two of them in the world. Uh, we're going to be flying uh, parts of Fort McMurray around the wildfire area. We're going to be flying right across the Northwest Territories to look at permafrost thaw and, and, and wildfire and ecosystem change over um, thousands of kilometers of these very, very sensitive transitioning ecosystems. And then we're going to be coming back down and we're going to be flying um, you know, parts of the Waterton area, parts of the Castle watershed, the usual places that we typically fly and monitor over time so that we can see how quickly these things are changing. Um, Linda's going to be helping us with some of that as well as our other grad students. We've got about six of us going up north to do field work. And um, we're also, of course, very well involved in uh, meteorological data collection, hydrological data collection, instrumentation, and, and field work beyond all of this flying. So it's, we've got a very exciting summer. Did you want to add anything? Uh, I can't add much to the, the excitement of the summer. Um, Laura calls it excitement. I think I call it stress. But. Uh, <laughs> It, it will be uh, an exciting and interesting summer for all of the reasons that Laura's just mentioned. There's one other project or program I should probably highlight though, and that is that we're very active out <laughs> in, the, in the castle. Uh, and so when you hear activism, that's probably where more of my work is likely to get showcased, um, is that we, we're looking at some of the disturbances and regeneration uh, or, or impacts of disturbances and, and hopefully ecological regeneration in the castle. And uh, as part of this overall study that we've built up since 2013, we've got hydrometeorological stations set up in the castle. You may have realized that the, the, the LIDAR snowpack maps that we showed you were all in the castle headwaters, and we know that's a very contentious area right now with the recent parkland and wildland designations. So we are working with the provincial government on collecting a lot of baseline data you know, to understand some of these disturbances and how changing the um, access and, and the restrictions in the environment actually play out over the long term. So, you know, I'm not ready to stand on a podium with a loud hail and start preaching to people, um, you know, what's happening in this environment. I have my own opinions about that, but I'm going to base my opinions in a few years' time on data. And so that's what we're doing right now is we're actually doing a lot of, um, you know, remote sensing, airborne satellite and in-situ data collection so that in a few years down the road we can actually, I hope, demonstrate that the protective measures that are being put into place in this environment are actually doing their job. So we'll see. That's, that's another part of what we're doing this summer. One more question, if, if I'm allowed uh, by the moderator. Okay. Uh, do you foresee uh, the day where aircraft will be obsolete in terms of doing this and uh, satellite imagery will handle all these uh, what we're what you're doing now, I, because I that would be constantly moder monitored in that regard, right? Yeah, that, well, that's an excellent question, Knud. Uh, actually, the I think a lot of people would argue that that may happen sometime soon, uh, especially as we've seen more and more drone technology being implemented and the payloads, the carrying capacity of drones increasing, uh, and there's reg the regulatory framework for drone or UAV uh, unmanned airborne vehicles uh, is. Um, transitioning into a more user-friendly environment. It's kind of been the Wild West for the last few years with drone technology. 
Um, but it is starting to mature. And so like one of my students, for example, is deploying drone technology to monitor the very issues we were just talking about, trail systems and regeneration in, in the castle. Uh, and so I, I do see that in some areas where we've traditionally used helicopter and, and uh, fixed-wing aircraft for airborne survey, I definitely do see that some of that work uh, will transition to drone or, or UAV-based. But one of the fundamental challenges is, is the range that you can go with a, with a drone system. And until we're talking, you know, kind of like U.S. military predator-type drones uh, used in a commercial uh, environment, uh, I don't know. That maybe that will happen in a few years from now. But until we go to that kind of uh, type of drone, I don't see airborne uh, type data collections being diminished because it, it fills a really important niche between what you can see at kind of a plot scale. You know, current UAVs and drones can only go so far, uh, you know, landscape scale, but not beyond that. Uh, so airborne plays a very good role in kind of plugging the gap between that kind of landscape scale and, and what you can see from satellites. Um, but yeah, some applications are going to go away. We won't, you know, we can now put LIDAR on drones. So yeah, I'd say some of the workload for airborne is going to diminish, but then we'll probably find other applications for that. Too many pilots, too many airplanes. We've got to find work for them. <laughs> Thank you very much for all of those questions. Um, so now before we all leave this uh, venue and everybody goes his or her own way, is there a take home message you would like to give the audience? Well, I don't want to sound like a snake oil salesman. Um, obviously, in a sense, I'm trying to push that you know, LIDAR is an underutilized technology in environmental monitoring. Um, but, I, but I think it, from a, from a long-term monitoring point of view, we are trying to identify where those threats exo uh, um, exist, you know, the, the outlying behaviors in the environment that lead to droughts or floods or fires or other uh, potential hazards. And so without monitoring, we can never do that. You know, without monitoring, we're going to be like that coastal village in Peru where, you know, one day we wake up and there's a flood <laughs> inundating our basement, you know, or, or there's a fire lapping at our deck. You know, monitoring is key to understanding these processes but also mitigating um, the, the damaging effects of these things. So, you know, whether you agree that LIDAR is, is the be-all and end-all, it isn't. It, 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 it fills a niche, um, but hopefully it's a valuable niche. It allows us to spatialize uh, some very important phenomena that we otherwise wouldn't have good information on. So that's kind of the message I'm hoping com that comes across today. <laughs>